Welcome back, everybody, to Laps and Taps. We're having a bit of change of pace this week due to uh, people taking out by COVID, which apparently is still happening in 2022. Who knew? And uh, so a lack of uh, availability from other cast members. So this week we're doing uh, something that was going to be a project for a bit later down the line, um, but we thought we'd start it now. Essentially, each of us are going to be talking about our respective nations from a cultural perspective, kind of going through their history and their history with the empire, and then some kind of guidance around what the culture actually looks like whilst you're playing the game and to give you some background to help you decide if our nation is for you. And also maybe you'll learn some things along the way if you are from this nation or if you're already a player at Empire and you want to learn about other nations that you might want to join or just so that you're aware of what they're like without having to read through the whole wiki. Hopefully you'll be able to provide some guidance on that. So today uh, I'm going to be talking about my nation Dawn, giving you an overview of their history, how they joined the Empire. Um, so I hope you enjoy. I hope you learn something. Uh, so sit back and enjoy the show. Wear your favours, seeking glory. Gird for battle in the morn. March beneath our bright silk banners with the valiant knights of dawn. Every day, our nation's symbol. Every morn, our pride reborn. Till you break the world around us, you will never stop the dawn. Great deeds are eternal. To the people of Dawn, these are words to live by. Those that dwell in these lands strive to write their names over history, leaving behind a legacy that will be told in the songs of troubadours until the foundations of the world crumble and all that remains is the dust of their bones. To gaze upon the people of Dawn gifts you with a truly glorious sight. Lines of knights and warriors arrayed in shining armour, carrying the colourful banners of their houses. Beautifully presented war mages weaving magic to power their warriors and fell their foes. Troubadours singing songs to spur on the fight. This is a nation of glorious warriors, and the only imperial nation that has never lost land to barbarians. To the Dornish, life is a quest, a great competition where the goal is glory, an intangible concept that every true person of Dawn holds dear in their hearts. They strive to prove their worth and show that they are worthy of the appraisal of their peers. To be clear, attempting the great, dangerous, glorious feat is as important, if not more, than succeeding it. In Dawn, it is inaction that attracts disrepute, not failure. Do everything you can to succeed and fail knowing you did so gloriously. Though acting a fool and stupidly running into the jaws of death is not glory, but folly. The glory one shows to the world is what defines your position in the social hierarchy of the nation. In Dawn, you are either yo-folk or a member of the nobility. Unlike some societal systems, nobility in Dawn is earned, not inherited. No one is born a noble. Everyone is born a yo-folk. But anyone can become a noble if they pass a test of metal set by a noble house. And those that are attempting a test are known as knight errants, but... I'll talk more on this later. There is another force in Dawn, which is nearly as strong as glory, and that is love. 
just as important and often as dangerous as glory, and equally deserving of the voice of a troubadour. Many Dornish seek true love, and they wish to strive for the greatest and most dramatic way to show that love to those that they hold affection for. Grand displays of romance and that pursuit of true love are things that define Dawn as much as chasing glory. Now, these concepts of love and glory are very important, and there's a reason I've spoken about them first. In order to delve into the history of Dawn and its relationship with the Empire, it's important that you understand the forces and culture that drives Dawn in the direction in which it travels and why it does the thing it does. At some point, between the fall of the Empire of Turuniel and the rise of our current empire, three waves of human colonization came to the continent. The second of which, settling in the east, were the forebears of Dawn. This early history is filled with the glorious battles that the Dornish fought against the barbarians that had taken the land that would one day be Dawn. It is generally agreed that the first monarch of Dawn was Tristan the Golden, under his banner of a rising sun, this tall, blonde-haired warrior king led his glorious nation to drive the orcs away into the marshes from the fertile and rich lands that would become what we now know as Weirwater and Astolat. Now, following the death of this first king, his heir was said to be an enchantress named Circe, though history often remembers her as the swan, and it was this woman who would create a tradition to define the way Dawn looks upon its leaders for hundreds of years to come, and would one day shape Dawn's place within the Empire. Following the death of her father, the Swan declared that she would not automatically become the next monarch of Dawn, but that her tourney would be thrown, and both her enemies and her allies were to compete. The prize would be the monarchy of Dawn. Once more, your status in Dawnish society is defined by what you do not from who you are born. Following this great tournament, Arwain the Bold was crowned Monarch of Dawn, although no one can quite agree whether this person was the swan's sibling, lover, or potentially both. Henceforth, all Monarchs of Dawn would be chosen in this way. Many monarchs followed, enough to make another episode in itself, but our story continues sometime later, at the start of the Empire. One monarch in particular would lay down the foundation of Dawn's destiny. It was under the reign of King Roderick of Astolat, known as the Lame, that this tale of love and glory took place. King Roderick was unwed, and many feared he was to remain that way until he drew his last breath. The king had a very high standard for who could be his wife, and the challenge to find someone who the king would marry was a great one indeed. So great, in fact, that when a young Naga a human who is magically changed to have the features of a serpent due to effects of the realm of night, whose name was Sian, requested a test of metal. He was told by King Roderick to find him a bride. Poor Sian had quite a task ahead of them, but he was able to enlist the assistance of a Navari. Together, they travelled across the continent and south to the nation of Highgard, and it was there they found someone who even King Roderick would find suitable. A woman of such passion, such prowess, and such beauty, that when the knight-errant told King Roderick of her, he was smitten. He organised a tournament in Astolat, in the grounds of the Castle of Thorns. A stunning sight, with stories of its own, this fortress stood before the River of Sighs, a wide, deep, fast-flowing river the knight-errants were told to jump over if the prospective house setting the test did not want them to join. 
resulting in the deaths of many a yo folk. He had the field arranged with a grand glory square, trimmed with the flags of the Houses of Dawn, and powerful nobles prepared to take the field and awaited the arrival of the hopeful bride that they had heard so much about. And then she arrived, this woman of high guard. But she was wearing the flag of dawn, a bright yellow sun upon a blue field. This is the symbol of a knight errant, marking her as a yeofolk. She arrived in the company of Earl Elaine de Savice, and clearly intended to enter the tournament, despite her lack of nobility, a traditional barrier to entry. The highborn turned to Earl Savice before all the nobility of Dawn and demanded a test of metal from her, and the Earl gave her a test that would make many a knight errant blanch. She was told to leap across the river of sighs. Unfazed by this challenge, she brought forth a beast on four legs, whose shoulders stood as high as the highborn herself. The creature had a strong neck and a long face, with a beautiful mane that flowed from the top of its head to the base of its neck. Its long legs ended in hooves, and its body was muscular. This was a horse, a creature now lost to the Empire, but very important to the highborn at this time, and mostly unknown to the Dornish. In her shining armour, she mounted the horse and spurred it on. The beast raced towards the river at a terrifying pace, shocking those near its path. As its hooves thundered upon the ground, the woman braced herself and the horse leapt into the air. And, with a tremendous thud, the horse and her rider landed upon the bank of the river. After a feat so glorious, no one could argue she was not a member of House Savice. The knight-errant Cien, who had organised this affair, urged the king to declare his ardour for the lady of House Savice before another noble had the chance to do the same. Much like becoming a member of the nobility, in Dawn, if one wishes to marry another, well, if a noble wishes to marry another noble, they must complete a test of ardour to prove that their glory is great enough to earn the love of that noble. And so King Roderick went to the Earl Savice and demanded a test of ardour, and she gladly obliged. If King Roderick was to marry this new member of House Savice, he should give up his crown, and he had until the beginning of the next day's tourney to do so. Through the night, King Roderick spoke with the highborn, the weight of his nation's future on his back. The lady who had just become a noble of dawn laid out her intent to start a great empire, combining the human nations of the continent together in order to strengthen their position and push back the barbarians. She would rule as the first empress, and becoming a monarch of dawn would bring the nation into the empire. The next morning, King Roderick abdicated his throne and married into House of Vis. He would be the last independent king of dawn. Following his abdication, the then would-be empress announced her intention to take the crown of dawn. The tourney was repurposed as a fight for the crown, as had been the tradition since the swan passed up her inheritance. Roderick and his bride rallied the earls, asking them to support this new cause to unite the humans of these lands under one banner and give rise to a great empire on which they would all prosper. Not all the nobility were behind this, of course, and so the battle that took place had strength of numbers on both sides. This fight was for the crown of dawn, and for the fate of its people. The fighting was fierce, 
and those lines of shining knights fought in the bright sun beneath the Castle of Thorns, that ancient seat of so many monarchs before. As the dust settled and the sounds of steel died away, the Lady Savise, the Empire's first Empress, was victorious. She was crowned Monarch of Dawn, and in the coming weeks worked to bring the nation into her new empire. And, after she followed so many of Dawn's traditions to enter the nation and win their loyalty, it is hard to argue with the many Dornish who claim that the first empress was truly Dornish, rather than highborn. As we have discussed uh, already, a large part of Dornish culture is proving yourself. It's not about where you come from, but it is about what you do. And this manifests itself most obviously through the variety of tests that are available for the Dornish to take in different social situations. One of the ones we've mentioned already is the test of metal. When a Dornish person is born, they are born a Yofolk. A Yofolk has no right to vote, has no position really in the political sphere, and is yet to prove themselves as glorious in Dawn. Any citizen of the Empire is eligible to take a test of metal. And the scions of most noble houses will attempt to take the test. The test is set by the Earl of the house of which the Yofolk is trying to join. Different houses have different methods of applying tests to the people coming in. These may test the attempters' strengths or weaknesses. They may adhere to their particular skill set, or the test set by the Earl of the House may in fact be impossible, and this can be the case when a noble does not want a knight errant to join their house. As we spoke earlier, a common test given to such folk is to jump over the River of Sighs. So as you can see, navigating the acceptance and asking for a test of metal is a complicated and potentially difficult business. You want to ensure that the test given to you will exemplify your glory while ensuring that the test is not so hard that you may be set up to fail and may inevitably die pursuing glory. Somewhat unsurprisingly, in a nation full of people who wear their hearts on their sleeves, wish to prove themselves the most glorious, and are very frequently in competition with one another. Disputes can arise. When a dispute arises between members of a noble house, the Earl will set a test for those involved in the dispute, known as a test of resolve. The idea behind this is that the Earl does not want to show favoritism to either side of the dispute. And so they set a test which leans into neither particular strength of either particular side, but will both put them on a similar playing field to test the resolve of uh, their opinion or their side of the problem. The loser faces expulsion from the house. If you refuse to comply with the agreed penalty before the test, this ends up with a great loss of uh, renown and reputation for any of the fighters involved. These tests are also often given to members of other nations who bring complaints against individual nobles. They are not always accepted, but facing such a challenge can bring a good reputation of a foreigner amongst the Dornish, especially if they win or lose graciously. A test of resolve is in fact the only way for a noble to be ejected from a house. Such challenges are rare though, as this can result in 
one member who is intended to be expelled defeating the person who was there to test and to get them out, which can result in the person who was supposed to remain in the house all along being kicked out and the person who remains being the one the house no longer wanted in place. After this test, it is incredibly rare for this noble or previous noble to join another noble house. Their second test of metal is often fatally difficult, and anyone who witnesses this test must see that it was difficult enough to erase any stain from a previous failure they made in a different house. This last test exemplifies love and glory, those forces that sit at the core of who the Dornish are. It is the same test that King Roderick the Lame undertook to marry the first empress that resulted in him abdicating his throne. As with that test, the suitor must go to the Earl of the House of their Beloved and demand a test of ardour, and the Earl cannot refuse this test. It too should be glorious and challenging, so that the suitor can prove their glory and their love for the one they wish to marry. Marriage in Dawn is a complex affair. Adoption is a large part of the culture of Dawn, and this means that the people view the bonds of a noble house and adopted siblings as more important than blood relations. And so, by extension, marrying within a house is strictly forbidden, even if there is no blood relation. Thus, two lovers who have not taken their test will need to test into different houses before doing a test of ardour to join the other's house. If two nobles of the same house do fall in love, one of them has to test into a different house with a new test of metal, and then must request a test of ardour to return to their house. Like I said, it's complicated. Another large part of Dornish culture is the grand tourney that occurs at each summit. These tourneys are only for nobility, but a blind eye is often turned for knights errant, who often take part in disguise as a black knight, thereby invoking a tradition that stretches back to the Dornish Empress Rishield, when attorney was announced for her to make an attempt at becoming the Queen of Dawn, none wished to oppose her, as she so gloriously exemplified the nature of Dawn. But to win by default has little glory, and so, to ensure the tourney still happened, fourteen knights covered their shields with black covers, and wore black cloth to hide their faces, and prepared to fight against Rishild's force of more than one hundred knights. To make the fight more even, only fourteen of these knights stepped forward. The battle went on for hours, until nearly half of the Empress's forces remained, and one lone black knight was grievously wounded. It was clear that she would die if she continued. The Empress implored that the knight yield, but she refused, insisting on a glorious victory for the future Queen of Dawn. The knight was buried in her armour, and her face never revealed, insisting that the only name that history ever remembered was Rishild's. And so, when the knight-errant's guise as a black knight, they invoke these brave knights and their desire to put the glory of the nation before their own. The grand tourney of nobles and black knights is a grand melee, and the victor becomes the season's knight protector. The knight has responsibility for being a representative of dawn with the corresponding realm, spring, summer, autumn or winter, and must assist with any threat that might come from that realm. This tradition has only recently been restarted, and I have an extract from a poem about the summer tourney. Since Dawn's fair nation first founded its lands, since King Roderick sought a wise lady's hand, since the glorious square first earned its own name, tourneys and tests have brought the Dornish fame. So I come today to tell a story of old custom now restored to glory. This very year, our greatest nobles fought, and, as in ancient times, a champion sought, who could all opposition overwhelm as knight protector of the summer realm. 
Each Knight Protector holds the title for a year until the start of the next tourney. A knight who is currently holding the title may not compete in another grand tourney until the year has passed. They can attempt to retain the title in the following year, but cannot compete for a different title before that, even if they resign the title or if it's revoked. A part of the responsibility of the Knight Protector is to assist the Egregores with hosting the other three events throughout the year. If a Knight Protector dies, if they step down, or if they somehow lose their title, the title of Knight Protector remains vacant until the next time a tourney is held. To mark the victory of the Knight Protector, the Egregores of Dawn ask the Weavers of Weirwater to make some banners for the victor. The banner is presented to the winner after the tourney, which is given to them either by the Egregore or the previous holder of the banner. They are expected to protect the banner with their life, and are expected to hang it in their tent at Anvil, and in their hall at home, so all may see its glory. The banner is magical, allowing them to visit the magical Hall of Worlds, and pass through any portal connected with a Regio. Eternals treat the Night Protector as an emissary, and they are granted certain protections from any treachery or violence when they are carrying the banner with them to that realm. Another thing that the Dornish love is flowers. At every spring equinox, the people of Dawn celebrate the Night of Flowers. During this festival, the Dornish are expected to wear their hearts on their sleeves, and often this is a time where any romantic relationships are presented or solidified. The festival is a massive part of Dornish culture, and it means that there is relatively consequence-free communication between the noble houses. Every house of Dawn has a flower code. This comes in the form of different coloured flowers and types of flowers meaning different things to every house. During the Night of Flowers, an individual who has been guised as someone called the Night of Flowers, somewhat confusingly, is asked to pass flowers around the Dornish camp to send different messages to different people from different houses in secret. This results in a lot of confusion given the fact that flower codes vary so wildly between houses. Whilst one individual may be wishing to confess their love to another, that rose in their hat flower code may in fact mean hatred. It is an honour to be girded as the Knight of Flowers, and, somewhat unsurprisingly, there is a, often a competition to see who will be girded as the Knight of Flowers. If you do not wish to participate in the ceremony, you are expected to wear a black sash to display your choice, and it is not appropriate to give flowers to these people. Magic is how the wizards and witches and other spell users in this world use their learning and willpower to create supernatural effects. However, one does not have to be a magician in order to invoke hearth magic. Hearth magic is the innate magic that suffuses the world, and every nation has different uses of that hearth magic, and Dawn is no different. Dawn has several different types of hearth magic, the first of which being favours. You can be gifted a favour from somebody else, which operates as a talisman to ward off misfortune and help to bring glory to the individual carrying that favour. A common kind of favour is a strip of cloth, which has maybe been embroidered or painted to represent some meaning between the person who is giving the favour and the person who is receiving it. But obviously, as I said, the Dornish love flowers, so another common thing to give as a favour is uh, flowers, which can invoke the same hearth magic. Favours can also interact with another type of hearth magic known as girding. So when somebody is being girded, as I'll talk about in a bit more detail later, they can be presented with a favour. And this favour is often the last thing that is attached to the person when they are girded. However, there are some fairly tragic stories where a favour has been given to someone in bad faith that perhaps carries a curse that will not protect the knight who bears it 
when they need it most. To most people, girding just refers to putting armour on, or getting your weapons ready for battle. But the hearth magic of dawn, when it comes to girding, is something a little different. When one goes to battle, it can sometimes pay to be somebody different, to take on some kind of furious, glorious persona on the battlefield, to help drive you forth into your enemy with glory and help to defeat them. Likewise, if you are a senator or an archmage, perhaps it works to have a different kind of personality in that scenario, and perhaps you need to channel the energy of a successful orator or a particularly powerful spellcaster. To be girded by someone is to have your armour or your robes or some other item of clothing attached to you that is relevant to the situation you are going into. And then to be girded means you can channel that personality. Perhaps someone who is gregarious, conversational and light-hearted may be girded in their armour and become fierce, aggressive and single-minded. Perhaps someone who is a little more flexible in their opinions or their matters, or is often open to compromise, can be girded before a great debate to be prepared to stand their ground and perfectly argue their opinion. The magical effects of girding are potent and used throughout Dawn. Every noble house in Dawn has its own unique heraldry. This heraldry works as a symbol of the individuals that wear it, and some people even have their own personal heraldry to represent themselves. Some even incorporate their great accomplishments into the heraldry to show who they are and what they have done and what glory they have achieved. Often the heraldry will carry pictures of legendary beasts into their designs. These can invoke different types of hearth magic, which can provide the bearer of this heraldry with some potent power or aura to assist them in whatever endeavours they need to partake in. Because the hearth magic of heraldry ties this heraldry so closely to the identity of the bearer, it is possible to obscure this identity by guising as a black knight, those brave fighters we spoke about earlier on. If you obscure your heraldry with black cloth and cover your face, it is much harder for people to identify who you are. The half magic of heraldry means that people are struggling to know who you are, given the fact that they cannot see the very symbols that identify who you are. The invoking of this hearth magic is also incredibly useful when working with Eternals, as they seem incapable of seeing through this disguise. The last piece of hearth magic I want to talk about is love and flowers. Love is not just romantic love, it can also be platonic or filial. True love combines souls together, which means after they have passed through the labyrinth, they may be destined to be reborn and find each other once again in their next life. Flowers are used as a symbol of love, and as I said earlier, often used as magical favours. During the Night of Flowers, you are often invoking the hearth magic of flowers to represent the love you feel for others, and this can help to bond you to the people that you feel the dearest for. But untrue love can bring a curse upon the people it is used with. One such curse can cause painful burns and welts to appear whenever one touches flowers and has petals on their skin. And people whose love is betrayed can have visions due to this hearth magic, with symbols associated with their relationship withering or burning. There are three main regions in the Nation of Dawn. Dawn itself is relatively flat, but is littered with large forests and rocky crags. A lot of these forests are used as hunting grounds for the nobles of Dawn who help to preserve and maintain the forests. In these forests of Dawn, you can find many dangerous things, wild animals, bandits, monsters, lurking in the trees and the ruins, 
Occasionally, these can cause trouble for the inhabitants of Dawn, and it falls to the knights of this nation to protect those people. Astolat is the heartland of Dawn, famous for its rose gardens and great granite mountains. This region is home to many a beautiful site and large parts of Dornish history. The Castle of Thorns, the old seat of the Dornish kings and queens, and the place where Dawn's journey into the Empire begun can be found in Astolat. The castle itself, now, is almost entirely covered in rose bushes, and now serves as an academy for the training of civil servants, and each Dornish senator has apartments here, with decorations to represent the territory that they govern. Legends say that the roses found around the Castle of Thorns are the remnants of a great enchantment from the enchanter Queen Jessame. The castle was once besieged, and using powerful magic, she surrounded the castle with a rose thicket to prevent her enemies from approaching. Other famous features of this territory include the harps of Astolat, six-foot harps found across the region, playing music as they are influenced by the currents of manna that blow through the air, Old Heart, an ancient town where you can find the finest fruit brandies in the empire, and Weaving, a place for ritual magics to be taught, and where cabals can meet for the greatest of magical rites. Weawater is a place in Dawn where you are most likely to find magic users and the noble houses that live here have more than their fair share. The territory is scattered with deep forests, many unmanicured by the noble houses of the region, and they are occupied by eternal heralds, great beasts, and an abundance of rare herbs. The caves of Weirwater have a dark reputation with the people of Dawn. They are said to contain mysterious magics. And the third region of Dawn is Semaholm. This is the latest addition to Dawn's regions, and the people of this land are known to be a little wilder than the rest of the people of Dawn. Semholm also produces a major share of the nation's food, despite being surrounded by thick and dangerous forests. These dark woodlands are home to many a challenge, including dire beasts, drakes, lions, and other vicious beasts. Hunting these is a common pastime for yo folk and nobles of this region, and some of them may be dangerous enough for a test of metal to be to slay one of these great beasts. Dawn is home to places such as the beautiful town of Semmer's Rose, a town built around an old citadel that looks like a rose if viewed from above, and the Golden Causeway, built with the assistance of the Lady of the Semelac, a herald of the Eternal Eleonaris. The final region I'm going to talk about is the Barrens. The Barrens is a region that the Dornish have tried to hold claim for for a long, long time. Whilst technically belonging to the Druge and being part of the Malum to the east, there are a good deal of Dornish who live in the Barrens, and there is a campaign underway to reclaim the Barrens and bring it under Dornish rule, making it an imperial territory. In recent history, there have been multiple claims from other nations to the Barrens, and there is currently a campaign, as this podcast is released, to reclaim the Barrens for Dawn, but only time will tell who this territory will go to in the end. Love, glory, and great deeds. These are the things that define this nation of great people. There is far more to this land than I've been able to cover here today, and I encourage you to go to the wiki on the Profound Decisions website to find out more if you think the nation of Dawn may be a nation that you would like to join. You're also more than welcome to send any questions you have uh, to me about my experience, or... If you want some uh, less opinionated ideas, perhaps email Profound Decisions, and I'm sure they'll be able to help as well. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the history and the culture of Dawn as much as I've enjoyed talking about it. And I hope one day that some of you will become Dornish 
And I hope that some of you that are Dornish uh, have enjoyed listening to a bit of froth about uh, the nation that I hold so dear to my heart, as I'm sure you do too. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out over Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter uh, at LARPs and TARPs. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to or follow us on YouTube if you're listening to us there. Hopefully this week we'll be corrected from our minor COVID incident and we'll be able to get some regular content back out. But I'm hoping to reignite this series with the other nations from the other members of the cast to ensure that we can get a good coverage and it's not just me telling you all to join Dawn which look, you all very much should do. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye.